Welcome to the power of surrender. First things first. You must surrender your expectation. For those of you expected to get your purple rain on, you're in the wrong house. See, we're not interested in what you know, but what you are willing to learn. Come on, y'all. This is Up All Night with Prince, a two-part audio documentary about Prince's prolific and experimental period of 2001 and 2002, brought to you by The Current in collaboration with The Prince Estate, Paisley Park, and Sony Music Entertainment. MPG, are you ready? Come on now. About to get deep tonight, y'all. That's the only way that we can rise up. Rainbow children, are you in here? The One Night Alone tour that Prince embarked on in 2002 was remarkable for a few reasons. It was a rare chance to see Prince in a smaller theater setting rather than his typical arenas. It was his first tour to cater to his longtime fans by offering exclusive levels of access to the members of his NPG Music Club. And it was all recorded, from the sound checks to the regular shows to the early morning after parties. Those recordings were released as Prince's first official live albums, a two-disc set called One Night Alone Live and a disc of late-night club gigs called One Night Alone, The After Show. It ain't over. Despite the name of the One Night Alone tour, Prince was joined at these shows by a pared-down, jazz-influenced live band. In the early 2000s, Prince was in a period of reinvention, and he was assembling a new group to help him explore these sounds. I met Prince in 2001, December. This is the keyboard player Renato Neto. He told me about how Prince recruited him for this jazzier, more improvisation-based tour. And I was very interested, and I said, cool, let's do it. And I went there to stay a week, you know, to meet him, and I stayed there for three months, you know. And we started uh, preparing the One Night Alone tour, you know. I'm from Brazil, you know. It was very cold, you know. December was like, wow. I was with my suitcase with all the summer clothes to go to Brazil after we stay a week in December in, uh, in Paisley Park. And uh, after a week, he asked me to stay another week. And I have to go to the shop and buy clothes, you know, because I was freezing <laughs> my ass. This whole month I stayed there the first time was very creative. He was very open to to myself, to you know, to bring my input, my, my influence, you know, the way I play. That winter, Prince settled on a new core lineup for his live band. It featured Rhonda Smith on bass, John Blackwell on drums, and Renato on keys. They would be joined by a revolving cast of horn players on the road. The One Night Alone tour launched in March 2002 in the U.S. and would take Prince and his band across the country and then to Canada, Europe, and Japan. 
Performing in theaters gave Prince an opportunity to change up his show and get away from a more choreographed, hits-focused presentation. As Renato recalls, Prince seemed to be toying with his audience's expectations from the moment he took the stage each night. We start the show, I'm doing a solo on the piano for like, uh, I don't know, five minutes, sometimes 10 minutes of piano solo. And I, and he's not coming to the stage. Everybody's like, you know, what's happening with that? <laughs> <laughs> and I was great. He was provoking, you know, the audience and the, his fans to be open-minded, to listen different music, different stuff, you know, more open, more improvisation, more jazzy in some way, you know. Prince would often leave the stage and let Renato, Rhonda, and John jam, or hand over the reins to one of his horn players. Depending on the show, fans might get a chance to see Maceo Parker, Candy Dolfer, Eric Leeds, Greg Boyer, or Najee blow their horns. Prior to meeting Prince, Najee had worked alongside legends like Shaka Khan, Quincy Jones, and George Duke. You know, I think Prince was at that time in his life which I think most artists go through. When you're established as an artist for one thing, you get to a point as an artist where you feel like it's just not gratifying anymore. So you start to look out and stretch out for other ideas and you connect with other musicians and try to feed off their energy. I think he was at that point. You know, a lot of times when people ask me about the Rainbow Children album, I always equate it to Miles Davis's Bitches Brew. It was really a departure from what Prince normally did. I always loved when, when it was just free, you know, when it's just improvisational. I mean, he would just say, Nashi! And just, I'd go out there and play, and man, that was it. You know, we'd just go for it. He was somebody that didn't like being um, restrained in his amount of time or his display of his talent. This is Scotty Baldwin, Prince's longtime live engineer. These are Scotty's front of house mixes that are included in the One Night Alone live releases, captured on digital audio tapes during the tour and burned onto CDs for Prince to review. Scotty was such an integral part of Prince's live presentation that you can actually hear Prince speaking to him on stage in some of these recordings. Scotty. Turn it up so loud that people upstairs try to get downhill. Prince was brewing on stage. He was concocting his, his, his composition. He was composing on stage live in front of us. John Blackwell and um, Rhonda Smith and Renato Neto are all great jazz players. They didn't have to work very hard to get into that mindset. It wasn't true jazz, but it was Prince's kind of jazz. Um, which meant there were jazz breaks, but then it would go full pop. He always had the caliber of musicians, especially in that band, that were able to pull back and go forward very easily. Um, and then you have a horn section of Mike Phillips, Najee, Candy Dolfer, Greg Boyer, Maceo, who are able to just pop in and out. Eric leads as well. And then you could add Sheila later. 
for special occasions. And it was, everyone knew jazz. They were all schooled in jazz. So they were able to kind of coach Prince through that rather than conversely, he usually was the one to coach players through a certain era or a certain album. They knew the limits of jazz. So they knew where to go and, and how to get back. In addition to provoking his audience musically, Prince was also challenging his fans to think more deeply about spirituality, race, philosophy, and the state of the world. How many of y'all believe in God? How many of you worship God? How many of you know how God wants to be worshipped? And that's where the agreement falls down, right? 20 churches in a one-mile radius. Everybody's at different churches worshiping different ways. Oh, we should champion our diversity. We should champion our similarities, not our differences. We should meet on a higher level instead of looking at white, black, rich, and poor, young, old, Differences, differences, diversity. Let's meet, let's meet somewhere higher. Rainbow children, you know what I'm talking about. MPG Music Club, put your hand up. MPG Music Club, they in the good seats. That tour was one where we were, we really made a point of getting the MPG Music Club members tickets in advance and also into the front of the house. This is Sam Jennings, Prince's longtime web designer. Sam ran the pioneering NPG Music Club, Prince's subscription music service that launched in 2001. So we would essentially take over the first 15 rows and fill them with just our members of the club. Well, he held fans, of course, with the highest regard. He was loyal to the people that were loyal to him. And even when band members and technicians weren't loyal to him, the fans stayed there. So this was really for them. And um, it was pretty special because who you would think would be the most fervent fans, the people with pull would always be up front. For example, I tell the story of Wesley Snipes. We were in LA and Wesley Snipes contacted Prince. Prince said to me, hey, um, guess who wants to come to the show? And I said, I don't know. He said, Wesley Snipes. I said, oh, cool. And he said, yeah, he called me and he asked for tickets. And I said, well, how many do you need? And he said, six. And he said, okay, that'll be $900. And he said, no, no, no. I was figuring you just give me six tickets. He said, oh, 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 okay. Well, when I watched your movie, Passenger 57, I rented out a whole theater and it sucked. (laughs) He said, I know my show is worth $150 a piece or whatever it was. So we laughed about that. Well, then sure enough, a couple of weeks later, we're in LA at the Kodak Theater. The show's about to go on and LA had a huge fan following. So it filled up this whole section almost all the way to the to the soundboard. And a couple of minutes before the show, I turned around and who was sitting behind me with shades on, two rows behind my soundboard, Wesley Snipes. So I reported that to Prince and we had a good laugh over that. He wanted the fans to have the true fans, right? He wanted to reward them. Thank you. Real music for real music lovers. What? WNPG on stereo now. Uh, 
addition to reserving the best seats for his fans, Prince also let NPG Music Club members into his sound checks on the One Night Alone tour. Those sound checks evolved into extended private Q&A sessions with his most devoted fans, who Prince called fans. Here's Sam Jennings again. I think it started out as sort of a lark, like, sure, we'll see what happens. Like, could be interesting. And I don't necessarily think he even intended to interact with the fans first. But I think once it started happening and sort of building on what he'd already started at Paisley Park, um, he started warming up to the crowd and, you know, I don't think he could really help himself, but like, you know, say stuff to them and he's the ultimate performer. So he's not going to ignore people watching, I don't think. And slowly but surely he started warming up and talking to them more and more having more interactions, taking questions, um, getting sound check done also, but, you know, inviting people up to sing a song with the band and you know, all kinds of stuff. I think it, I think it just kind of snowballs. Like once he got comfortable with it and once he realized that it was going to be cool. And again, the MPG music club members, like I said, they, they know how to treat them with respect. So um, it was never really an issue of people screaming and, fainting and anything crazy like that. They were uh, very special for those people that were there. I have to tell you, they are lifelong memories for those people. And what I liked is that at one point I asked Prince, do you want me to have a mic in the audience for people to ask questions? And he said, no, I don't want any of this recorded. Don't record any of this. Oftentimes, if I was back at the back of a venue, I couldn't hear what they were saying, which I think is even more beautiful because that experience will remain with those fans alone between them and Prince. In a purple spotlight A figure spins around Tell me baby, baby Do you like the those sound checks with his fans and the regular show, Prince would often tack on an after show that would give people a chance to see him and his band let loose in an even smaller room. During the end of Soundcheck, the big show, Prince would say, y'all want to jam tonight? And he almost always, without exception, would ask the band, and of course they'd all nod yes, because they knew there was some money on the other end of it for him as well. Um, then he would turn and say, Scotty, want to jam tonight? I'd say, cool. And they would find a club, Usually his um, head security guy, Trevor, would find a club or Takumi. Somebody would find a club to play. And I would fax over an input list and they would get the board ready and they would get the right rental gear and we would go directly over from the show. Just there'd be cars waiting. We would hop in and race over. Um, Usually since the band had to get out of all their stuff and Prince stayed in something kind of flashy, he and I would arrive oftentimes at the same time. He would usually go to the soundboard and sit there while I was quickly running around helping Mike the stage and get a line check going just without musicians there. And there was a buzz about it back then. You remember, this is when everyone could smoke in clubs. 
it almost looked like a projected image in these clubs and the chatter and then people would realize Prince was there and they would turn and they would there'd be a lot of focus on the soundboard area and the band would come in they'd play a little bit and I would quick sound check and Prince might whisper a couple things to me about how he wanted something to sound or what he was going to play that night or how long he was going to play he'd sometimes say we're going we're going to go two hours tonight Scott I'd say okay cool he knew that my dat recorder that I carried with me only was two hours so he could usually land those in under two hours. Um, he would always pick up on that. It's very interesting that he would know exactly how much to do and what and when to do it. And so I would start recording. He'd walk up there and take the stage, and then it would. Um, it just had a dirty, sweaty feel to it. It felt really good. He liked to frequent this club. Majority of the time is is just like a you know there's no playing. This is piano player Renato Neto again. It's just like you know after the show, he decides to do a jam you know in some place. So in LA, we go to. I remember once we were playing a Quebec theater on Hollywood Boulevard, and uh, after the show that you know, we did, you know, he decided to do it on a House of Blues, and I was like you know in an hour, he decided to do that. Went to the hotel, took a shower. And like one in the morning, went to the House of Blues and did like a, a long set, you know, a jamming, you know, and it was sold out of people, you know, people find out like in, <laughs> in 30 minutes and, uh, and then when you see his line outside, you know, I was pretty impressed, you know. That was Prince Unplugged. This is the saxophonist Naji. You know, we did everything. I mean, you could imagine we'd go anywhere in the music. Uh, I mean, one time he wanted me to, you know, how people jump in the audience and you do ride the wave kind of thing. He wanted me to do it, which I did not do. I was like... He said, man, jump out there, jump out there. I'm like, I'm not jumping out there. He's like, come on, man, I'll buy you another horn. I'm like, nah, man, I'm good. I don't want, <laughs> what if they decide to part the wave, you know, and I'd fall straight down, you know? So, so you know, you never knew what to expect. It was always fun, you know, and you never knew who would show up. He would allow them to sit in and, you know, just have a good time. This recording was captured at an after show at The World in New York in 2002 and features Musique, Soulchild, and Questlove performing Musique's song Just Friends with Prince. How y'all feel? Y'all feel good? All right now. There's so many cats showing up that time, you know. I remember a few, but Shaka Khan a few times. I've been so a huge fan of Shaka. Steve Wonder, Jennifer Lopez's husband, what's his name? Mark Anthony? Mark Anthony. Great guy, too. Very talented guy. So many people came. You know, everybody loves Prince. You know, everybody loves Prince's music. It's always something new, you know, going on, you know. You 
you know, he filmed everything. And uh, I recall a couple of times where he would invite us back to the suite after we play a show and an after party, then we go back to the suite at four in the morning and he wants to watch everything we just did. I mean, I'm asleep on the couch, like, and he's like, Najee, look what you played right here, man. And I'm like, and I'm looking over on the head like, oh yeah, man, that was dope. I'm like, I'm half knocked out. It's like five in the morning, you know? I never saw him sleep. Never saw him sleep. Doze off, none of that. Prince had a vision for the live albums he would release once the tour was over. A two-disc set called One Night Alone Live and an additional disc called One Night Alone Live The After Shows. It ain't over. He would often check in with Scotty Baldwin before and after the show to make sure they were capturing exactly what he had in mind. Can you tell the story of It Ain't Over? Mm. I believe it was New York City when George Clinton sat in and uh, he started the chant. It ain't over. It ain't over. It ain't over. Sometime later, Prince already had this all in his mind. So at an after show, he said, I'm going to do a short after show tonight. But at the end of it, I'm going to start the chant. It ain't over. I'm going to turn my mic to the crowd and I'm going to get them to say it. And then I'm going to walk off. I might come back, but I want you to record that. That's when you can crank everything up, mute the instruments and crank everything up. So he already had the director's hat on. He knew what he needed. He needed the crowd chanting. It ain't over to use in editing later. So when Prince said, it ain't over, it ain't over, and he started chanting, he turned them all, and he kept at it, putting his hand to his ear. The crowd kept chanting it. He walked off, then he walked back on and said, yup. And they kept chanting it, and then he walked off, and then they kept doing it, thinking he'd come back, thinking he'd come back again. He didn't. But by the time I got on the bus, I got a phone call, and he said, hang on, here's Prince. Prince came on and said, did you get it? And I said, yeah, I got it. So all he was interested in was that little bit so that he could give it to the engineers. So clearly, he was orchestrating this, like Geppetto, <laughs> way in advance. Obviously, he'd been listening to the digital audio tape I'd been giving him over the length of the tour, the course of the tour. And he knew in his mind that he was going to release a, a live box set. But releasing a live record, especially a, a three-disc, six-album release, every other artist that we know and that you've ever heard would multi-track it, go back in the studio, fix things that they didn't like, re-record vocals. They did almost none of that. As I said, the engineers at Paisley Park mainly mastered it and did some interstitial fades with the crowd through the vocal mics. Completely trailblazer thing to do, which is monetize something that normally wouldn't be monetizable. Yeah. There's something so poignant about getting to hear the crowd through Prince's microphone. It's like mm. you get to hear what his perspective was in that room. Tell the truth, y'all. Got to, got to tell the truth. Tell the truth, y'all. Got to, got to tell the truth. You want to talk about In addition to collecting tonight. Prince's DAT Excuse recordings me, for these historic live albums, name? Scotty also wrote the liner notes for One Night Alone Live. Now that the live albums are being reissued, a whole new generation of Prince fans will have the opportunity to experience the collection through Scotty's eyes and his ears. 
I look at that era in Prince's career as very exploratory, not unlike Love Sexy. It's something that I sort of put those two records, the Rainbow Children and the Love Sexy era, I put in the same. It's just that when he played Love Sexy live, he did all the hits with them. This may not have been all the hits, but in a way, I think you got a deeper, a more meaningful look into Prince as a person. And I'm really proud of the work we all did collectively in this era because it speaks about where he was and and in the canon of his work. It's a, it's a particular era, and I'm glad the fans will be able to enjoy that. If you want to go higher, then we got to get deep. If you want to go higher, Thanks so much for listening to Up All Night with Prince and for checking out these great early 2000s Prince albums with us. As I mentioned in part one, this is such an intriguing and lesser known period of Prince's career. And I appreciate that these latest reissues gave us a reason to dig in and learn more. As Scotty said, there is a lot of material to study from this era and so much that it can tell us about Prince, an artist who seemed to reinvent himself every year throughout his entire career. Up All Night with Prince is produced by The Current and supported by the Minnesota Legacy Amendments Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. This program was produced in collaboration with the Prince Estate and Sony Music Entertainment and with their support. This story was hosted and produced by me, Andrea Swenson, produced and edited by Anna Weggle, and mixed by Corey Schreppel, with production support from Brett Baldwin, Lynn Elliott, Cecilia Johnson, David Sapphire, and Derek Stevens. Thanks to Trevor Guy, Michael Howe, and Zach Hockable. To learn more about The Current, visit thecurrent.org. If you haven't subscribed yet, search for Up All Night with Prince on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, to learn more about Prince, visit Prince.com. Doctor, teacher, teacher, what you say? Did it really come over in a boat? Did it really go down that way? Did I ride? you say